We turn in the Word of God together to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. A number of weeks ago, when we considered the doctrine of the Trinity, we read the first five verses of this chapter. So this morning, let's begin our reading at verse 6, and we'll read the rest of the chapter. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then art thou, Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth Abara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. 
and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. We read the Holy Scriptures that far this morning. It's on the basis of this passage of God's Word and the rest of the Scripture that we receive the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, Lord's Day 12. You can find that in the back of your Psalter on page 8. The question before us this morning is this, why is he called Christ? that is, anointed. Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body 
hath redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our consideration of the articles of the Apostles' Creed, we turn our attention this morning to the second significant name of our Savior that is found in the Apostles' Creed, in the article in which we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord, Last Sunday, we considered the first significant name, the name Jesus. This morning, we turn to the second significant name, the name Christ. The name Christ is very familiar to us because it is found everywhere in the New Testament scriptures, almost on every page, it seems. The name Christ has a very rich meaning that we are going to explore this morning. When we look closely at the name Christ, we come to see that it's different from the name Jesus in this regard, that it's not a personal name of the Savior like the name Jesus is. The name Christ is more of a title that points to his position or his office in the kingdom of God. When John the Baptist was asked by the Levites, who art thou, as we read in the chapter, John the Baptist replied, I am not the Christ. Notice by that answer of John that Christ is evidently a position. I am not the Christ. Later, when Andrew heard John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God, Andrew found his brother Simon, or Peter, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, verse 41. There too, Andrew indicates that the Messiah, or the Christ, which are the same name, are not a personal name, but really a reference to an office. And that leads us to ask the question this morning, what did John mean? What did Andrew mean? What did they understand by that word, Christ? And what are we to understand 
when we confess, I believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So I call your attention to the, this subject under the theme, Believing in Jesus as the Christ. We notice, first of all, the meaning of that name, the anointed of God. Secondly, we consider his work as the Messiah. And finally, who are the partakers of his anointing? The question before us this morning is, why do we call Jesus Christ? That is, the anointed. Why do we call him that? And the answer of the catechism is that God has ordained him and anointed him with the Holy Ghost to execute what the Catechism describes as the most important office in the kingdom of God throughout all the history of the world, the office of the servant of Jehovah, the mediator of the covenant, the savior of the world, our chief prophet, our only high priest, our eternal king. The need for a Messiah began to be felt in the world immediately after the fall of man into sin. It was after the fall that we began to experience guilt and the fact that we are blind and lost. We began to experience that we are estranged and separated from God and that our minds have become darkened. Life in this world became miserable. It became nothing but a continual death that ends in death. And evil began to reign. And the destruction of this world began to loom large off on the horizon. And the need for a Messiah, the need for a Savior began to be felt. So the idea of a Messiah arose in the hearts of men already in ancient times. And that idea and desire for a Messiah persists until the present time. You can find that desire for some kind of a Messiah throughout the nations and cultures and religions of the world. Because man is filled with fear as he lives in the world. He is afraid of world catastrophes. He is afraid of evil tyrants, and he yearns for some kind of a Messiah, for some kind of leader to rise up on the stage of world history and to solve the problems of the world, to deliver us from poverty, pollution, war, and all kinds of catastrophes and calamities. There's a yearning in the heart of man for a carnal Messiah to bring peace and flourishing so that we can live a prosperous and enjoyable life here in this world. And the scriptures teach us that man will get his wish. This idea and this yearning for an earthly carnal Messiah will be fulfilled in the last days. We're told in scripture that the dragon will raise up this Messiah of the world, this anti-Messiah, This false Messiah, this beast who will rise out of the sea of the nations, and all the world will wonder after him, and all the world will worship him, and he will accomplish 
some short earthly peace and prosperity. He will seem to be a deliverer from all of the problems of mankind. He will exalt himself in the temple of God, presenting himself as God and as the Savior of the world. But this idea and this hope of an earthly Messiah will perish in the lake of fire for all eternity. On the other hand, the scriptures reveal that God, Jehovah of hosts, has a plan, had a plan from all eternity to raise up his Messiah, to raise up his anointed, one particular individual, one specific person, God planned to raise up from the midst of the human race to bring salvation, to bring light into the darkness, to bring peace into the chaos, to bring eternal flourishing into a new heavens and earth. And to raise this individual up out of the nation of Israel for the salvation of Israel and the nations. God began to reveal this plan immediately after the fall. When he came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he spoke to them the promise of the Messiah for the very first time when he revealed to them his plan to raise up a seed from the woman, a seed, a child, an individual who would come and who would bruise and crush the head of the serpent, that lying, wicked Satan. Later, God promised to raise up a prophet, like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18. And this great prophet would speak the words of God like no other prophet before him or after him. In the days of the judges, God promised to raise up a faithful priest who, unlike Eli, with his failures and his sins, would be faithful to do the will of the Lord perfectly. In the days of the kings, God promised to raise up one particular king from the house of David, from the line of David, a king who would sit on the throne of David for all eternity, whose kingdom would have no end. A prophet, a priest, a king. And later, when the great house of David crumbled and collapsed from its former power and glory, God raised up his servant Isaiah to prophesy that he would cause a little rod to sprout out of the stump of Jesse, that he would cause a branch to rise up out of his roots, and that this king would reign over an everlasting kingdom of righteousness and peace and prosperity in which the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He promised through Isaiah that this Messiah would be a light to lighten the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, and to heal the sick. But he promised through Isaiah that this Messiah would be a man of sorrows who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Later, when the children of Israel and the children of Judah were about to go off into captivity in Babylon, God raised up his servant Jeremiah 
to give to them the comforting promise that he would raise up a Messiah. He would raise up a righteous branch onto David, a king who would reign and prosper, who would bring salvation and peace. And in his days, Judah would dwell safely and there would be salvation. In the midst of the captivity through his servant Daniel, God revealed through the vision, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that in the last days God would raise up a kingdom, a king, like that stone uncut from the mountain that rolled down and smashed the image of Nebuchadnezzar into a million pieces, that image representing the kingdoms of this world. And this king would reign for all eternity. After the captivity, God raised up his servant Zechariah the prophet to reveal that God would raise up a Messiah, a branch, who would be both a king and a priest, who would build the temple of the Lord in those days when the temple had been crumbled and destroyed. He raised up Haggai, his prophet, to reveal that he would send the desire of all nations And when he comes, he would fill that temple with the glory of God. And again, through Zechariah, he promised that this Messiah, this branch, this desire of all nations, would come into Jerusalem as a lowly king, riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And yet he would come to bring salvation. All of these many prophecies and many others were God revealing to his people his eternal plan to raise up one individual, one specific person, his anointed from the midst of the human race, from the midst of the nation of Israel to bring salvation and peace and eternal prosperity to the nations. So what does it mean to be the anointed? The word Christ and Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, God instituted anointing as a ceremony in which one would pour oil over the head of another as a symbol that God was pouring his spirit upon that man to give him the authority and the ability to execute a particular office in his kingdom, an office of prophet or priest or king. There at Mount Sinai, Moses took a horn of oil and poured it over the head of his brother Aaron so that the oil poured down the the face and the beard of Aaron and dripped down his beard and down his robes down to the ground. It was a picture of God pouring out his spirit upon Aaron and anointing him into the office of the first high priest in Israel. God sent the prophet Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to anoint David, his youngest son. And Samuel took that horn of oil and poured it over the head of David so that the same oil rushed down the head of the young lad as a sign that God had chosen him to be the king, a man after his own heart, 
to reign over his people. God told Elijah the prophet to take the horn of oil and pour it over the head of Elisha to be his successor, to be a prophet. There were many anointed ones in Israel, and each and every one of those anointed ones was an office bearer in the kingdom of God. They were given authority from God and gifts from the Spirit to execute their task in the church of the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, or king. But all these many anointed ones pointed forward to one specific individual that God had ordained from all eternity, whom God planned to raise up and to anoint with the Holy Spirit to the most important office in the whole of his kingdom, in the whole of his creation, and in the whole of history. The anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And the gospel, the good tidings of great joy, is that God has fulfilled his promise. God has carried out his plan. God has raised up this one individual. God has sent his own son into the world to be that individual. Jesus is the anointed, the Messiah. God announced these glorious glad tidings first through the angels who appeared in the night sky outside of Bethlehem where Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. And that angel said to shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. God announced these good tidings once again through an extraordinary bright star that appeared in the east that was seen by wise men, magi, and which signaled to them that the king of the Jews had been born so that they traveled from the east to the west and they came to Jerusalem, the great city of King David, and there they asked, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. God raised up John the Baptist to baptize people with water in the Jordan River. But when people came to John and said, Who are you? John confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not that prophet. I am not that priest. I am not that king. Well, who are you then? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths of the Lord. I am the forerunner of the Christ. This, he said, when he saw Jesus coming to him, 
This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This, this Jesus, is the Savior of the world. He is your Messiah. He is your prophet. He is your king and your priest. And when Jesus came to John with the Jordan River and said, Baptize me, John said, Oh no, I must not baptize you, but you must baptize me. And Jesus said, No, you must baptize me. For thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. You must baptize me, not because I have sins that need to be washed away, but you must baptize me because I carry the sins of the people of God. And you must baptize me as a sign that I am the anointed one. And when John took Jesus into the Jordan River and baptized him with water, that was the day when God anointed him. God did not pour oil over his head, but God sent the Holy Spirit down from heaven in the form of a dove. And that beautiful red, white dove flew down from heaven and rested upon him. That was God showing us this Jesus is the one. He is the Christ, my anointed. Do you believe in Jesus that he and no other is the anointed of the Lord? Believe. Now let us briefly consider what is the work of Jesus as the Messiah. In the first place, the Catechism teaches us that God has ordained and anointed him to be our chief prophet and teacher. To reveal to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. First of all, his work is to be our prophet. When they came to John the Baptist, one of the questions they asked him was, Are you that prophet? Because in Deuteronomy 18, God had shown through Moses that he would raise up one great prophet who would speak the word of God to his people like none other. So they asked him, Are you that prophet? And he said, No, I'm not. Jesus is that prophet. God raised up many prophets throughout the history of the world, and to each of those prophets, he spoke his word, he revealed his word, so that that prophet, being filled with the knowledge of the word of God, he bubbled over and he spoke forth the word that God gave to him. That was the work of a prophet. He spoke forth words of judgment. He spoke forth words of salvation. But at last, God raised up his own son to be our chief prophet. And Jesus is our prophet like no other prophet. Just consider, unlike all of the prophets before him, 
who had to wait for God to reveal to them his word. Jesus did not have to wait because Jesus is the word of God. Jesus didn't have to wait for God to reveal to him his secret counsel and will because Jesus knew it already. He knew all of it in his divine nature. And in his divine nature, he conveyed that knowledge to his human nature so that he was able to speak the word of God at all times. He's our chief prophet. He is the word of God become flesh. Consider, unlike all of the prophets before him who pointed forward to the coming Messiah and said, trust in him, believe in him, they all pointed away from themselves. Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they never pointed to themselves. They pointed away from themselves and said, look for the coming of the Christ and trust in him. Unlike all of those prophets, Jesus said, I am the Christ. I am your Messiah. I am the way of redemption, the way of salvation, and there is no other. I am the light of the world. I am the way. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus said as our prophet. Unlike all the other prophets who said, repent of your sins, And turn to the Lord and believe in God. Again, pointing away from themselves. Jesus was the one prophet who said, Repent of your sins and turn to me. He did not say, Go to the Messiah. He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Believe on me. Trust in me for your salvation. Jesus is the only prophet who did and who could preach himself as the content of the gospel, himself as the content of the word of God, himself as our Savior who would lay down his life on the cross to redeem us from our sins. He's our chief prophet And through Jesus, God reveals to us his secret counsel for our redemption, namely, redemption through Jesus himself. Jesus is also our chief prophet in that he, like no other prophet and no other writer of Scripture, has revealed to us the secret will of God for our life. Jesus not only says to come to him, and to believe in him. But Jesus says, and follow me. He exhorts us to follow him and to obey all of his commandments, chiefly the commandment to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the second place, his work as Messiah is to be our only high priest and to redeem us by the one sacrifice of his body and to make continual intercession for us to the Father. In the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons were the high priests. We saw that Moses anointed Aaron at Mount Sinai with oil to be the first high priest. And 
the only legitimate high priests after Aaron were the sons of Aaron. They were from the tribe of Levi. Now, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. How then could Jesus be our chief and only high priest? That was a problem that the early church had to wrestle with, and God revealed the answer to them in the book of Hebrews. You can read that for yourself. There he teaches us that Jesus is not a priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. There was a mysterious person who appeared in the book of Genesis in the days of Abraham, long before Aaron, who was named Melchizedek. He was the priest of the Most High God and the king of the city that would become Jerusalem. God would later reveal in Psalm 110 that when the Messiah comes, he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning he will be a priest who is also a king. None of the sons of Aaron had the right to the throne. None of them were kings in Israel. The sons of David were the kings. The sons of Aaron were the priests. But God said that when the Christ comes, he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest king. And yet, also the priesthood of Aaron pointed forward to the priesthood of Christ. But unlike the priests in the house of Aaron, who had to offer and slaughter bulls and goats and sheep on the altar in the temple. The Christ, when he comes, must give his own flesh and blood to be slaughtered on the altar of the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The priests in the order of Aaron, had to offer those sacrifices again and again and again, continually, day by day and year by year, throughout the ages of history. But the Christ, when he comes, would do this once, once and for all, through the sacrifice of his own body on the cross for our sins. The priests in the Old Testament, when they shed the blood of bulls and goats, would take that blood in a basin and bring it into the temple, into the holy place, into the most holy place, and sprinkle it over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But the Christ, when he comes, offering up his own precious blood on the cross, would take it with him in a figure into heaven itself, before the very presence of God in the most holy place of all, and sprinkle that blood before the face of God, and before the presence of God as a sacrifice to make satisfaction for all of our sins, to appease the wrath of God for all eternity. The priests in the line of Aaron offered up burnt incense on the altar of incense continually, and they made prayers to God's people continually, that is, continually until they died. And when they died, they were no longer able to pray for the people. But the Messiah, when he comes, will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
That is, since Melchizedek appears suddenly on the pages of Scripture and then suddenly disappears, and it's as if he's an everlasting priest, the Messiah will be an everlasting priest who will make continual intercession for us so that we may have the comfort that the wrath of God will never break forth upon us. In the third place, God has ordained and anointed Jesus to be our eternal king. To govern us by his word and spirit, defend and preserve us in the salvation he has purchased for us. In the Old Testament, as we saw, he anointed David, the son of Jesse, to be the king of Israel. And the only legitimate kings were the sons of David. That became a bone of contention between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Because in the northern kingdom, there were kings reigning over the tribes of Israel who had no right to the throne. Only the king in Jerusalem had a right to that throne. But Jesus was from the line of David. As Matthew 1 and Luke 3 make abundantly plain, both through Mary and through Joseph, Jesus was in the line of David, an heir of the throne and the promise of an everlasting kingdom. Very interesting in the passage that we read, when Jesus heads up to Galilee, And he calls Philip to follow him. And Philip goes and says to Nathanael, We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. The response of Nathanael was, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was not known to be a place where famous, renowned people would come. But Philip said, come and see. So Nathanael followed him and came to Jesus. And as he was coming up to Jesus, Jesus seeing him said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, as if he knew him. Nathanael looked at Jesus, never having seen him before, and said, How do you know me? And Jesus said to Nathanael, When you were sitting under the fig tree, When Philip came and called you, I saw you there. And Nathanael knew there was no way this man could have seen him there. So Nathanael was suddenly struck in the core of his heart. And he exclaimed, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Nathanael was right. And Jesus said to him, Just because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see much greater things than this. God sent his own son, as Nathanael recognized Jesus was, to be born of a woman who was in the line of David, the royal line, to be the king of Israel. But all of the kings of the Old Testament 
were kings with earthly power and earthly riches and glory, reigning in Jerusalem with a physical crown on their heads and physical robes of royalty and scepters, fighting physical wars. But Jesus came into the world a king of a heavenly kingdom, and he humbled himself, as Zechariah the prophet said he would do. A lowly king, he entered into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey and gave himself to the death of the cross. And as we remember, the superscription above his cross said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But having accomplished salvation, he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And from the right hand of God as our king, he now governs, defends, and preserves us, as the catechism teaches. He governs us, his people, by his grace. He governs us by his word and spirit. He governs us, he rules over us through the preaching of his word, through which his spirit works and through which his grace works in our lives, right here in the church. He rules us through elders who exercise discipline in our lives and hold us accountable to live as Christians. He defends us as our king. He defends us from ultimate apostasy, falling away into perdition. He defends us from the temptations of Satan. And he preserves us in our salvation and the enjoyment of it. What a glorious king we have. That explains why we call Jesus Christ. Whenever you hear the word Christ, whenever you read the name Christ in the scriptures, you may understand all of that meaning in that one name. But what does it mean that you are called a Christian? That's the next question of the Catechism. When John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Lamb of God, from that point onward, he told the people that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. And he told them to follow Jesus. From that time on, those who followed Jesus became known as his disciples. But much later, when the church began to grow and to spread, and when the church spread from Jerusalem north to the city of Antioch, we're told that in Antioch, for the very first time, the followers of Jesus were called Christians. Now what does it mean that we are called Christians? Christians. To be a Christian is to be a person who is associated with Christ, to be a person who believes in Christ, a person who is a member of Christ, who has been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and as a member of Christ is a partaker of his anointing. Christ means anointed one. Christian also means anointed one. It means we too are anointed with the very same thing that Jesus was anointed with, the Holy Spirit. It means 
that the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. And the Catechism shows us what a marvelous benefit that is to us. It means, first of all, that I am able to confess Christ before men. I have the Holy Spirit in me. You do. That means we are able to confess Christ before men. We don't have to deny him as we are prone to do by nature. We don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed of him. We don't have to be silent. We have the ability and the privilege of opening our mouths and confessing joyfully and courageously the name of Christ in the world. In the second place, it means that we are able to present ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness to God. As a priest, we have the Holy Spirit in us. That means that we are able to present, to offer our whole life as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. It means that we do not have to present ourselves as dead sacrifices to atone for our sins. It means that we don't have to give ourselves to the accursed death of the cross because Jesus did that for us. It means now that we are able and privileged to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. It means that we no longer are slaves to sin who cannot do anything but present ourselves sacrifices to ourselves, who cannot do anything but serve ourselves. It means that we don't have to be slaves to selfishness anymore. It means we have the privilege of giving ourselves, offering ourselves to God and to our neighbor as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. And thirdly, it means that we have the privilege to fight as a king against sin and Satan in this life and later to reign with him forever. It means that we are kings and queens in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We've been anointed. That means we don't have to fight against God anymore. We don't have to kick against the pricks anymore. We don't have to fight and fall down in the midst of the battle. We have the strength to fight against sin, against Satan to be courageous and bold, to stand in the midst of the heat of the battle, clothed with the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and to battle against sin as long as we live with a good and free conscience. A good and free conscience because we've been justified by faith. God has imputed to us the righteousness of this Messiah. And knowing that, in our conscience, we have peace. In our conscience, we know that we are righteous. God has given us a free and good conscience through our justification. We know that although we are sinners, and our conscience accuses of that, nevertheless, we are righteous in Jesus 
and therefore we can live and fight as believers. Catechism ends by giving us a note of hope when it says that after this life, after our journey through this valley of tears, we will reign with him forever. That's the hope that we have as Christians. This Messiah, this great anointed servant of Jehovah, this Savior of the world, will come again. He will finish his work. He will come again to destroy the anti-Messiah who is yet to come. To create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell, where the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the lion with the kid, where there will be peace and joy and rest, no more tears, no more sin, and no more death. So I conclude with a question to you. In John chapter 6, when Jesus made plain that he was not the kind of Messiah that the people wanted, and many people walked away from him, he said to his disciples, Will you also go away? And I ask you that question. As we live in these last days, as we hear and see around us scores of people walking away from Jesus, abandoning the faith, will you also go away? May God grant to each one of us the answer that Peter gave to that question. Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, give thee thanks for the gospel of Christ. We give thanks to thee for the gift of faith, whereby we lay hold upon Jesus. And we pray that thou would continue to preserve in us that faith, that we may follow him, that we may joyfully take up our cross, deny ourselves, and cling to Jesus until we come to the end of life's journey and give us then the hope of everlasting life with him. In Jesus' name we pray.